So he's like the godfather of the whole franchise. You know, I kind of, I didn't, not that I stayed, I stayed away from him, but I didn't uh, impose on him except for one time I went up to him and I said, you know, Mr. Cod, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm not a big horror fan, but the only reason I took this job is because I'm such a huge fan of the Halloween series, especially the first one. And he put his hat on my face. He said, it would have been just that much better if you'd been in it. And I thought, what a sweetheart. What a very kind thing. This It just made my, oh, it was just, you know, it just made my day. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply... For over 40 years, the Halloween series has thrilled and terrified audiences. From its low-budget origins to spawning a new era of slashers. The franchise remains a cultural touchstone around the world, often referred to as the Gone with the Wind of Horror. From the first chilling notes of the iconic score to the final frame, join Joel Brown as we explore the iconic horror series, digging deep into the characters, the storylines, and the spine-chilling scares. Welcome to Talking Shape with Joel Brown, the ultimate podcast for Halloween franchise enthusiasts. Tomorrow night, you will enter the childhood home of our most brutal mass murderer. The home has been rigged up with several cameras, but for the most part, the audience will see only what you see. Are you sure they're not just putting us in some house with hidden cameras in the shower? This is gonna be fun. The windows will be boarded up and all the doors will be locked shut behind them. No one will be allowed to leave until the show is over. Let the danger-tainment begin! You think this is the one that he used to, you know, do his thing? One flash and you could light up a thousand computer screens. You are like this close to getting voted off the island. Wait, what just happened? We just lost Bill's camera. There's somebody in the hall. Sooner or later. What took you so long? Trick or treat, mother. My next guest has an extensive list of credits to his name as a stuntman and actor, but it's his role as the shape Michael Myers in Halloween Resurrection from 2002 that has made him a household name with horror fans. It's a big hello and welcome to Brad Lurie. Thanks so much. Good day to everybody down there in Australia and fans around the world. Very nice to see you all. Well, just quickly talking uh, off air, Brad, that uh, you've got some family here in Australia, and uh, I was really happy to hear that you do uh, tipping, uh, like you're talking about the rugby league or in the union or like you're doing tipping. Now, I have to say that I'm a bit of a, I'm an Aussie rules fan. I just came from uh, the Sydney Swans game uh, last night, so we'll have to get you on uh, onto the AFL. Fair enough. I've got a mate here uh, that's uh, from Melbourne, and he was teaching me a little bit about Aussie rules, and I, I watched it when I was in Australia. I Joel, the summer I turned, back in 87, July 87, I turned 27. 
I bought a one way around the world ticket for a year. And the last three months of my trip were in Australia. And so I, I worked at the Coogee Bay Hotel and um, I was supposed to go up to the Gold Coast, but I met this girl three days into the into the into my time in Australia. We fell madly in love. And so I never got up north till we broke up nine weeks later. So but yeah, Aussie rules. <laughs> And so when you were traveling around the world, uh, I mean, because I've sort of uh, done a bit of research, you were a bouncer uh, for a while. Were you, were you bouncing in Australia or were you just traveling? No, I, at the Coogee Bay Hotel, I worked as a, basically a bar porter, you know, busting tables and running for the booze as the as the, as the bars got low. Uh, my cousin's friend was the manager and um, I got to take four bags of refreshments up to the boys from Crowded House after a concert they had there one. Yeah, uh, just me and the four of the boys. I didn't know who they were at the time, but I, I'm a big fan of this today. Uh, that, that, that was going to be one of my questions. I mean, what sort of uh, music, uh, I guess, sort of uh, sticks with you? What's your go-to music to listen to or bands? Oh, gosh. Well, I've been a Beatles fan since I was three. I think the Beatles music was the very first music I was consciously aware of, thanks to my cousin Jeff, who lives in Sydney, Australia today. Um, we were just little kids when the, 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 the cousins that ended up moving to Australia in 66. They were all very musical and are to this day. And, um, but I remember, I remember the Beatles and, uh, oh gosh, I love everything, but uh, I, I don't really have a music I dislike. I try to be open-minded about, you know, the hip hop and the rap that I don't really understand. It's not my culture, but, you know, after working with Buster Rhymes, I tried to listen to some of his music, but I could not get into it. I mean, I love the guy, but I his music's a little above my head. Now, you might be able to help us out. I was talking to uh, my cousin and uncle uh, over Christmas last year, and they said that uh, there's a band in Canada, which is the equivalent of the Beatles. I want to see if you're a Canadian, uh, what what band would I be saying if they're the, the Beatles of, uh, uh, well, I guess sort of Beatles-like uh, to Canada? They're a Canadian band that are being compared to the Beatles. Well, I guess I guess that's a, that's a, that, that's a big uh, a big stretch, but they're very they're like one of the Canadian iconic bands, apparently uh, loved by everyone. Apparently, even uh, your prime minister, bare naked ladies. No, mate, I don't I don't know who that would be. I uh, uh, I can't I can't imagine it would be Blue Rodeo. No, and I'm just fifty three in five days, Joel. I'm not really up on today's music. I you know today's art is. Not my generation, and I don't really know it. What if I say the tragically hip? Okay. <laughs> yes, I know the tragically hip very well. They actually wrote a song about my ex-girlfriend when we broke up, and I've seen them seven times in six different venues. But Gord Downey, the lead singer and lyricist, got brain cancer some years back, and he ended up passing away. But they're a long way from the Beatles. Are they an indeed Canadian band? Yeah, they're from a place called Kingston, Ontario, which is one of our infamous cities because it's known for its prison. Kingston Prison, that's the, in Ontario, near the not too far from the capital. That's, uh, it's amazing. I, I love uh, sort of just finding out what people are listening to or sort of bands and uh, things like that. So I, I usually, I sort of go to, I guess, sort of uh, rock, but I could, you know, a bit of alternative, uh, go from some pop or 80s, uh, especially just, you know, you can, you know, at, a, at the flick of a switch with uh, Spotify. But um, 
I've in doing research uh, on you, Brad, uh, sort of just, you know, checking out some interviews that you've done with fans and you've done an extensive amount of interviews and I feel you're very gracious with your time speaking to fans of Halloween and horror fans. You do conventions and that, but I guess just just wanted to ask, you know, how, how, how are you doing? Because obviously learning that you're, you're medically retired, you had a few accidents on your bike. Yeah, I got into two motorcycle wrecks in um, the um, spring of 08 and then again in 09. Tried to work for one more year, but my body just wasn't. Um, so I've been on disability since September of, of, of 2009. I still go. And then for like eight, not eight years, I didn't work at all. But I do belong to Stunts Canada, which is like the big stunt group here in the western side of the country. And, um, you know, there's days, Joel, where you're just a passenger in a car or you're walking across the street. I mean, some days it's a zero danger and some days it's a 10. So I still do the what we call gravy days. These young kids that are up and coming, they appreciate that I helped them when they were when they were you know starting out. And um, I gained a little weight during the pandemic, so I just recently was in a zombie film where I I'm the fat guy that comes around the corner and has a heart attack, falls on the girl, and then she gets attacked by the zombie. Do you kind of is there the young man like the young man mentality? You wish you could sort of do the big things again, or are you kind of quite happy just doing the as you say the gravy work. Well, Joel, if I'm realistic about how much more damage my body can take before I'm in real trouble, I, ha- I have to be smart about that. But uh, in answer to your question, there's um, there's a few gags that I never got to do that I kind of just like to have done at least once. Like I never did a car hit, you know, where the, you're walking across the street and, and I never did a full uh, full burn. I say that I never did a really big high fall, but I did do a 60 footer a couple times into boxes. Um so I kind of downplay that, but uh, you know, uh, I'm quite content. Although they are much, much, much more safety minded today than they've ever been. I mean, the whole world is, especially what after after what happened to that poor girl on 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 Deadpool here in Vancouver. But no, this what what we call fart knockers, where you really take the lumps and you have to hit the concrete because that's so much, so much harder today, Joel. I don't know what they're making it out of, but I'm quite content to be um, the stunt actor who says a couple lines and then lays down when he gets shot, but. The big stuff, no, I don't want to do that anymore. You've been around for a while. Do you sort of see yourself uh, with uh, Stunts Can- uh, Canada that you were mentioning there? Like you kind of uh, mentor a lot of young uh, stunt people coming into the industry? Well, uh, wh- when I say, Joel, uh, you know, when I, w- when, I w- when I was in the loop, I would meet these new kids. And I don't remember being the first stunt man they ever met. I didn't know. The first guy that gave them advice and offered to help them, the first guy to ever hire them. I don't remember doing that, but they do. And uh, I just remember, Joel, that when I first came on the scene, there were a couple of guys that weren't real happy about my coming in into the business because they were, you know, thought I was going to take work from them or whatever. But anyway, um, but in Stunts Canada, actually next year is my uh, 25th year. And after 25 years, you get a lifetime member belt buckle and you no longer have to pay dues after 25 years so um mine's coming up may 16th 1999 is when i got into the group and they'll uh, have a big parade or uh, a big uh, party for you i don't know <laughs> if anybody even give a hoot or even they'll, you know at the meeting they'll present me with the belt buckle and hopefully somebody shows up <laughs> now um as a as a kid um did you um i know you sort of you did a lot of uh was it taekwondo or karate but was there any other sports that you were fond of or that you did like um football i mean uh, uh i mean obviously hockey's big in canada like but what about football or what was it joel i uh, i was more of an art- artistic kid growing up you know i loved to draw and i loved to read 
even paint. And for a while, my dad was okay with that, put me in art, arts classes, whatnot. But then I guess he wanted me not necessarily to be an athlete, but he wanted me to have a shot at playing the sports that he never got to do as a kid because he grew up really poor on the farm out, out in the prairies. So he had me in uh, baseball, soccer, lacrosse, swim club, um, everything, everything but hockey, which is the one I asked. Because you had to get up at 5 a.m. to take the kids to practice. My dad wasn't doing that, but he'd have me in multiple sports at a time. I remember I, remember I was doing four sports at a time while supposed to be going to school and get excuse me, get an education. But the only two sports I ever asked to do was karate, hockey, hockey and karate. Yeah, because I asked that because, I mean, you know, you, you kind of um, said yourself when you were younger, you, you, you're athletic. And I thought sort of if there was a sport where, you know, you'd be somewhat athletic, it, would that be kind of like a smooth transition into doing stunts? Yeah, for sure. It's my athleticism, especially the martial arts. I got into the business because whenever an elite actor beats somebody up or shoots somebody, it doesn't look good when a big guy beats up a little guy. Then They're always average size. So they like the, the bad guys to be, you know, big goons. I'm six two, two and a, you know, not right now, but I'm over, you know, big, big, heavy guy. And um, so we would do fight scenes or whatever, and I get beat up and eventually go down, you know, get hit with a stick or shot or kicked in the nuts, you know. So yeah, but my athleticism allowed me to quickly pick up things like motorcycle riding and, you know, air sense when you did have to do an air rammer that launches you into the air. I mean, I was never great at that, but without those sports, I mean, I, Boys, but have the mindset that Joel, that if I can do it, anybody can do it. But I've seen people who cannot do it. They don't have the sense of timing. They don't have the uh, concentration, you know. And um, so it's not 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 for it's not something everybody can do. And I'd imagine it's an industry where you know you definitely don't want to lie or bullshit, so to speak, because you'll put yourself in a uh, quite a dangerous situation. Especially, I guess, sort of back in uh, I guess you know the eighties when you were kind of breaking in. Because I'd imagine there'd be a lot of uh, not breaking the rules, but it would be very kind of wild west. Well, Joel, you know, uh, on a, on a day of production, they you know they have to get the dialogue shot first, and however long that takes, the action's always left at the end of the day. And sometimes, after all your rehearsals and practices, suddenly you're in a rush, and all that goes out. Though not all of it, but it's it's amazing to me there aren't more injuries than there are. Not today, not today. Today, stunts is. We have our own ward ceremonies, you know, and uh, we're a little more respected than we used to be because we were the uneducated knuckleheads back in the day. But today, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, Joel, these um, second place finishers in these different martial arts and gymnastics and these athletes that didn't get on the cover of the Wheaties, but they're super talented, discovered, oh, I can work in the film industry as a stunt person. And now these kids that come into the business today are so talented. It just makes me feel like a like an old dirt on a log. But that's always been my uh, analogy. Like say like when like TV and radio were, um, you know, just in its infancy, it was so much easier to sort of get your foot in the door because there was, a, you know, everyone was still learning as, how, how it went. And obviously as things progress, they get more technical or more advanced. And I mean, you've got, you know, schools, schools for acting, say for example. But, and I mean, is there schools for stunt people? Like I, I it, it didn't, doesn't seem like there would be. Joel, back in the day, there was a guy named um, uh, something Kahana. He had a school in California, and then it moved to Florida. So there was a, and then you know, like the, the, the local film school here has a stunt course. But you know, Joel, I um, 
I always respected the kids that were willing to spend the money, take the time to go and do a stunt course. But there's a lot of coordinators that I grew up with that were from the school of hard knocks where you had to learn the job, learn your craft on the job. And I've actually seen guys get snubbed because they went through a, through a, a stunt school, which just never made any sense to me. But um, yeah, it's, you know, you, you want to, you have to have a particular skill. Mine was fighting. And then it really helps to know somebody, but these kids today, some of them are so ridiculously talented. First time you see them do something, you know that they're going to be working steady. And you mentioned fighting there. I believe Bruce Lee was a uh, one of your early childhood heroes. Um, I, I was just doing a bit of research on Bruce Lee. Um, his last film, I think he he technically only appears in forty minutes of it, and they had to use uh, other bits of film from other movies and a lot of standings. Yeah. I think they were even superimposing people over other people's faces. They had some guy with a real big, ridiculous beard. What, what was it about Bruce Lee for you as a kid that really sort of stood out to you? Um, Joel. Um, well, I'll tell you, I thought about that long and hard for some time. And then I remembered when I was just a little boy, I was standing in the bathroom doorway at the house looking up at the pedestal sink and then looking at my dad shaving. And during that conversation, somehow it came up. He said, Bradley, I don't want you to be a bully in this life. You don't pick on other kids, but if someone starts a fight with you, you clean their clock. So I always admired the guys that weren't the bullies and had to get back into a corner, but then could defend themselves. The Bruce Lee characters, like I was six years old when I, I forgot all about Batman and Robin when Kato came on the scene with the Green Hornet. I was six then. And then seven years later, when I was 13, I saw the first uh, Fist of Furies, Bruce Lee's first film that was actually called The Big Boss. And his character was a stand-up guy that didn't pick on anybody, but when this, you know, when his back got against the wall. So that's the kind of people and the, and the kind of people I, I looked up to. And I, I just, when I found out Bruce Lee was, you know, had been lived in Seattle and uh, had all this history, because I got all sorts of history with Seattle being as close as we are, only two and a half hours away, right? So... I just thought he was a great guy. And uh, if you ever want to see the real Bruce Lee, go on YouTube and punch in Bruce Lee, the lost interview. And it's a 1971, 24 minute interview with a guy named Pierre Burton, who's a famous Canadian journalist. But before he got big, before anybody knew who he was in America, Pierre Burton interviewed him. And it's just Bruce Lee being Bruce Lee for 24 minutes. It's really, really fascinating. And did you see Quentin Tarantino's um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, and uh, I think the, a lot of people were a little bit upset by the depiction of Bruce Lee. I mean, it was sort of, you know, tongue in cheek. Uh, did you see that? Oh, I did. I've seen it several times. I love the film. Yeah. I just, I think, I was surprised that Quentin would would depict Bruce Lee like that. But from everything I've read, the people I've talked to, Bruce Lee was so supremely confident and supreme confidence could come across as arrogance. Yeah. I don't know if Bruce was the kind of guy that was a show off, but, um, and I'm sure he came across as arrogant to a lot of people, but I've met a lot of his students. I've trained with a lot of his, his former students and they all said he was just a great guy, just a, constantly joking. And, uh, but they all say when you ask him if he was the real deal, they only get super serious and go, Oh Yeah. George, I think it's George Booth, the, the character that uh, Brad Pitt plays. He's uh, he's the stunt double uh, for Leo right. Leo's character. There, you sort of been in the stunt world. Was there any kind of murmurs amongst the community or the industry who who that was loosely based on, or just a just a Quentin Tarantino character? 
No, I didn't hear uh, anything about it being based on a real person. Um, I know that Quentin Tarantino is a, one of the directors that really respects stunt people. I've watched him behind the scenes directing Zoe Bell. And he loves watching a good gag as much as he likes watching a good acting scene, you know, and I really admire that about him. From your your time in the industry, who's probably the most interesting person or interesting actor that um, people might not, not, not know that you doubled for? Huh, that's a good question. Um, I doubled Kevin Sorbo on a show called uh, Andromeda. But, I, you know, I... I, I um, I was never a huge Charlton Heston fan until after he passed away, but I doubled Charlton Heston on a movie called Alaska. I also doubled Jack Palance on a TV show called Mysterious Ways. And one of the last things I did before I went on disability was I doubled um, uh, Jeff Bridges for a couple of days on Tron Legacy. I didn't get a whole lot of interaction with him. Do you know who else I doubled is the English actor, actor Alfred Molina. Okay. And he was an absolute sweetheart, very talented, super intellectual, and uh, just a really nice guy. I was going to say, Jeff Bridges, uh, I'm a massive uh, Big Lebowski fan, the dude. So that could have been a cool person to uh, stunt double for in that movie. I don't know, there would be much action, but, uh, you know, when he's drinking a beverage or smoking a joint. <laughs> Joel, I had years prior worked on this goofy Viking film or whatever it was, but uh, uh, his brother Bo was in it. And I asked Bo if I could get a picture with him. We took the picture, and after he snapped the picture, I went, "Thanks, Jeff." Oh, I mean, Bo. He was cool. He didn't get he didn't get uh, bitchy. He didn't get dinky about it, but he wasn't. He didn't laugh about it either. Now, being in Canada, um, you've said that you not you weren't much of a wrestling fan growing up, but um, there's a wrestler called Brett the Hitman Hart who considers himself a Canadian hero. You're a Canadian. Would you consider Brett Hart a Canadian hero? I would, I would, Joel, in that I understand from my wrestling buddies that actually were, you know, in, in that scene for a while that, you know, uh, the hearts were real wrestlers. Like, you know, there's a lot of guys in that business that are showmen, you know. I mean, there's, I've heard guys quote saying Hulk Hogan wouldn't know a wrist lock from a wrist watch. And I worked with Terry, great guy. But uh, I like, I like the hearts because, uh, I, because they're, they actually were the real deal. So Canadian hero, yeah, I, I would say that Bret Hart is a, is a Canadian hero. You might sort of uh, respect as well. I guess, you know, like wrestling can be considered, you know, just two big knuckleheads trying to beat the hell out of each other. But there's a wrestling to its purest form is storytelling, which is kind of like filmmaking, right? Uh, you know, when, when, when done right, um, it's the best thing ever. It's theater. Yep. And I did do, I worked to doubling a guy uh, on a show low budget kids show for Fox called Los Luchadors and they were Mexican wrestlers by day and crime fighters by night. So we had to learn all these wrestling things and I had to jump off the top rope and do all that stuff. And I've got the utmost respect for wrestlers. And as a kid, when I first started bouncing, getting back to my bouncing career, a lot of the bouncers were wrestlers. And I learned very quick. The last guy you want to get into a street fight with is a wrestler. I found interesting, Joel, because I've met lots of them. And to a man, they're super kind, sweet, and friendly people. And I got thinking, I wonder why that is. And then I realized, oh, when you take the male persona and you take the ego out of it because they know they're as tough as anybody in the room, they don't have to show off or put on any airs. And, um, I mean, I yeah, I met a lot of the guys, and they're great guys.
And I guess as well, like back in the day, like say in the from the, like the sixties and seventies, even before, they were actual, you know, quote unquote shoot fighters. So like they could they could wrestle, or they had some form of like you sort of mentioned sort of uh, skill. Like you mentioned with your stunts, you sort of you know taekwondo or karate. Like you know you could defend yourself if need be. Right, most of them kind of had that, or they knew had the to defend themselves. But I guess as well, like in the early days, a lot of these people that that's that's all they had was wrestling. They were these sort of uh, interesting characters that you know they didn't have a full time job. They they were either born into it via family or somehow fell into it. Now you, you had an interesting sort of childhood. Do you think if you didn't get into stunts, not that you necessarily would have become a wrestler? I guess the question really is, if you weren't in stunts, what do you think you would have eventually got into? Probably growing weed. <laughs> would, would that be uh, a bit of a business now uh being legal uh over in canada right you know it's really changed the whole uh environment um uh because the government's trying to take control of it of course because they don't want you selling it uh you know, behind, you know other than through them because of the you know the tax money um but when i was a kid i just knew so many people that were growing weed and uh but i was raised not to uh you know to break the law but if I hadn't gotten into um, stunts, I don't know, Joel, where I'd be today, either dead or in prison. And I know it sounds dramatic, but I bounced around my whole life, you know, Joel. My father wanted me to be uh, educated and sober, but I hated his gut, so I became a drunken idiot. And I just did whatever paid the bills most of my life. But I remember, since you asked, I remember being 30 years old and working a shift as a doorman. And I just thought, man you got to get it together because you haven't got much more time. You know, you're getting into your money making your money earning years and you're, you're working for 50 bucks a night as a doorman. That's not going to, you know, go, go anywhere, but, um, uh, but it, you know, um, and it was my, it was my karate instructor who, you know, became a stunt coordinator, stunt coordinator, a guy named Tony Morelli that got me in the business, but I didn't really pursue it, Joel, because I so had him on a pedestal and kind of had my head up my ass. I always thought I wanted to be an actor, but, Ken Kersinger, who's actually the one that took me aside, said, Brad, you should go get a page or a headshot and a resume, and I'll take you around and introduce you to everybody. And he's a man of his word. And um, now we're, you know, uh, doing horror conventions together because he, he, of course, played Jason and Jason versus Freddy. I probably would have gone up north. I was never big on working unless it paid. Uh, so I might have gone up north and run big machinery, you know, and done seasonal work. Work it, work it, work through the through the thaw, and then come home in the winters. I have no idea. And you you mentioned your good friend there, Ken uh, Kersinger there, uh, Jason um, in Freddy versus Jason, and I think. I remember seeing that in the movies and thinking that was absolutely amazing. That was like the first of its kind of that kind of uh, horror crossover, you know, sort of the Godzilla v King Kong type of uh, stuff you yeah. see back in the day. Ken is um he's he's a he's a big uh, unit. He's about 198 centimeters. He's quite uh, towering. Yeah, he's another three four inches taller than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, we'll talk about wrestlers. Maybe he could have uh, had a career as a professional wrestler. Well, he tried to get. He tried to play in the Canadian Football League, and during a practice or an exhibition game, he blew his knee out. And that's when he gave up his dreams on football and started focusing on the stunts. Yeah, he was actually only one credit away, one course away from getting his degree. But he started getting so much stunt work, he just said, I'm going to go do this, you know, and he's never looked back. And uh, he's done very well for himself. He's still fairly healthy. I mean, we're all beat up. We've all got, you know, long-term injuries. And um, But he and I, uh, he and I are going to uh, Birmingham, England, the first weekend of September. 
And then the third weekend of September, we're in uh, Plymouth, Minnesota together. So I'm looking forward to that. And so when you guys go traveling to these conventions, is it, uh, it sounds like it'd be a good time. You, you know, get to meet fans and uh, sign autographs and do all that sort of stuff. And then do you guys go out and, um, you know, go have dinner with each other and, you know, have a good weekend or week or whatever it is? Well, we're, you know, on the, on the big day, which is Saturday, they usually ask us to, you know, attend a, a VIP party so that people can kind of rub elbows with, you know, and, um, but yeah, we, uh, you know, I, we try to, we try to, you know, um, we always make new friends, you know, you meet new fans and they're all such great people. I'm not a big horror fan, but I'm a big fan of horror fans because they're such nice people and so loyal to the genre. My God, we hang out and um, go to dinner with, with, with each other and friends. And Ken sits you down over a beer and says, uh, you got to pull your socks up, mate. Uh, you know, you, you got an opportunity that's uh, right in front of you and you don't realize. That's exactly what he said, Joel. He told me, Brad, uh, he says, why aren't you doing this full time? And I gave him my reasons. He says, no, man. He says, with the do- dollar where it is, the Americans are going to keep coming up here. And you're a couple sizes smaller than me, a couple sizes bigger than Tony. I think there's a spot here for you, Brad. And I tell you. I went straight out. I got the pager. I got the resume and I got the headshot. And uh, next thing I know, he takes me to this club and I meet this guy named Charles Andre with the shortest brush cut I ever seen. I said, that's quite the haircut. He says, yeah, I'm Dublin Robert De Niro. I couldn't believe my ears. He was Dublin Robert De Niro in a movie called This Boy's Life, which was Leonardo DiCaprio's first film. That's right. And uh, yeah, you know, we've been friends ever since. <laughs> You mentioned the headshot. Is that the classic one uh, online of you in black and white? Uh... No, no. I just, I'm talking 30-something years ago, So, um, and, and those have all gone by the wayside. <laughs> the first headshot I ever had, Joel, I had long, dark hair. But in the picture, the way that the, the photographer got me to oppose, I kind of had my neck cranked. And when I met people after giving them the picture, they saw the picture, then they met me. They're going, Brad, in that picture, your neck looks like it's this big. Like, I thought you were a big, beefy dude, and you're you're just a normal-sized guy. And uh, so I went and got new headshots. And um, But I remember the first time Charles and Kenny suggested I might ever get into Stunts Cat. I thought, those guys are dreaming. That'll never happen. And it did happen. So <laughs> You mentioned earlier you're doing uh, the TV show, uh, Lost Luchadors, where you were sort of doing the stunts and sort of uh, end up coordinating. And it's uh, sort of on a fateful day when, I guess, uh, the first season wrapped that you get a phone call to uh, uh, be the double for Mike Myers of Austin Powers. Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> we did the 13 episodes and, you know, it's you're on hiatus, but we were 95% certain we were going to come back for a second season. But a guy named Brian Knight, who's one of the first ADs I worked with, he went to interview with the people, knowing he wasn't going to take the job. But as a professional courtesy, he went in there. And during his interview, he met, they, they mentioned to him uh, that they didn't know who their Canadian stunt coordinator was going to be and who their Michael Myers was going to be. And he said, well, you know, you should talk to is Brad Lurie. And I get this phone call out of the blue from this woman I've never met asked me to come in. The ne- I thought they were, like I said, you said, uh, I thought they were looking for a stunt double for Mike Myers, the Canadian comedian. And because uh, I hadn't seen the movie in 18 years. And uh, but I went in and did the walk for the director a few times. He turned to the producer and said, yeah, he'll be fine. And they didn't look at anybody else. They sent me down to L.A. They cast my head. They built the mouse. Next thing you know, I was on set for six weeks. Do you think that is? So, like, I'm not sure how it works. Like, I know each country is a little bit different. Like, there's a lot of films that get produced in Australia, again, because it's it's cheaper. And I imagine that's why, they, you know, in Canada, because it's, it's cheaper to do. Is there sort of like a rule, like, there has to be a certain percentage of Canadian workers on set 
is is that what the I guess you know one of the main reasons beating Vancouver was cheaper? But you had to have local people, right? Had to have local people, and I mean, if you're bringing everybody up from California, you got to fly them, you got to house them, you got to per diem them, you got to pay them the American rates. And at first, they did that a lot because, you know, some Americans think of Canadians as Mexicans in sweaters. That's literally how they think of us. So they didn't think there was anybody here that knew what they were doing. And back in the day, we were faking it as we made it. But today, uh, some there's crews up here that are as good as they come in the world. And as I understand it, um, uh, you know, it's, it's much cheaper to build sets in Canada compared to California. And um, But yeah, runaway productions, you know, I mean... Hollywood is where the brain trust is, but the actual logistics and the physical, uh, uh, you know, the uh, locations, they're all, they're mostly out of California now. A lot of them are anyway. And so you, they, they take you to LA, they do the cast of your face for the mask and, you know, you're thinking, oh, I'm doubling for this one. No, 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 you, you are going to be no, Michael oh, Myers. When they told me that I was going to go to get my mask head cast, I said, wait, wait, I got to go all the way to LA just to double some humming <laughs> actor. They said, no, no, you're not going to double the guy. You're going to be the guy. Because the one horror film in my life that I really, really appreciated was the first Halloween. If it had been any other show, Joel, maybe even Jason, I may have passed on it because I was the last five episodes of Luchadors. I was the coordinator and the stunt double, and I was making big, thick cake. And um, but when they said you're going to be Michael Myers, and I had no idea that it was going to turn into podcasts and conventions and. Uh, other people, you know, other, you know, Ken and I both get hired on these low budget horror films because they want to use our name, you know. So it's just turned into quite the thing. And the thing is, Joel, when uh, when Luchadors came back for the second season, they only did two and a half episodes and they pulled the plug and said, that's it. And it was never seen again. So you're, you're on set. I mean, how does how does that happen? I mean, in the, you know, you've done you've done the mask. You're your first day on set. Like, I mean, do you, is there any pre meeting of like the say, for example, uh, Mustafa Akkad, or are you meeting them on set? Like, how does that process look? Well, I met everybody at the at the first meeting, uh, the production managers and the execs and the director, and uh, but then I had to go through a whole um, screen test, you know, in costume. And, you know, at, what at one time, Joel, they even had like a black mesh in the eyes. And I think we shot a couple of scenes with that mesh. And then Mustafa said, no, 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 I want to see his eyes behind the mask. I want the I want to be able to see there's a human being there. I guess somebody suggested that they had shot Michael Myers with a mesh in a previous film. So they thought they were going to do it again. But Mustafa put the kibosh on that. So they just blackened around my eyes. And, uh, and you know, and then the mask came on and little Velcro and little comb and the way he went. It was great. Was he an intimidating figure? Like, not in, I guess, in a, a scary or imposing way, but so be like, oh, that's Mustafa Akkad. Like, obviously, the Halloween fans knew who he, know who he is. Like, did you not sort of been as big as a fan of the franchise at that, at that time? Like, you sort of know, you know the name or whoever he is. But was he an imposing figure? I mean, does he, you know, the pipe in the mouth or something while on set or? Well, no, he wasn't a very big man, but I, I was made to understand very quickly who he was. So he's like, the godfather of the whole franchise. And so, uh, you know, I kind of, I didn't, not that I stayed, I stayed away from him, but I didn't uh, impose on him except for one time I went up to him and I said, you know, Mr. Cod, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm not a big horror fan, but the only reason I took this job is because I'm such a huge fan of the Halloween series, especially the first one. And he put his hat on my face. He said, it would have been just that much better if you'd been in it. And I thought, 
What a sweetheart. What a very kind thing. This it just made my oh, it was just you know, it just made my day. You can sort of hold, um, you know, that was the last real film for Halloween that he was the producer or part of, right? Because yeah. obviously he would um, pass away a good few, I think, 05, a few years after and uh, that uh, terrible accident or, or attack in Jordan. Yeah, yeah. His uh, daughter that he went back to, uh, to Jordan or Syria for a, for a wedding and there was a terrorist attack and the daughter got killed and he had a heart attack. And I just thought, what a horrible way to go. And I remember emailing Malik and just saying, Malik, I don't have the words, but I just, I'm absolutely broken hearted for you and your family. And he said, thanks, Brad. And um, so now Malik's, Malik's on, uh, got the reins and I believe he's still in charge of that, uh, that franchise. But yeah. I hope they, hopefully you're going to see him in October. Because he, he was driving you around. Uh, was he? Uh... Yeah, yeah. He picked me up at the airport and drove me to get my head cast and, he was sort of dad's right-hand man at the time. And uh, he told me about how Jamie Lee Curtis only had 30 seconds of non-dialogue screen time. How do you come up with this? That, they, that she owed, she said, whatever you can shoot in a weekend, I'll do. And he said she donates all her salary to the uh, terminally ill children's ward at LA Children's Hospital, I guess. And uh, which I just so admire. I just so honored to, to meet her and get to work with her. And yeah. Yeah. And with Malik, he's obviously, you know, taken over the reins now. And I think um, I was speaking to uh, Anthony Massey. He was sort of uh, big with the the website at the time that it was it was a bit of a transition from Mustafa to Malik from the film side of things. Did you did oh, I'm trying to think like things like did, did you see that he, like he was really eager to take over the family business, so to speak? You talk about uh, Mustafa being the godfather. I guess this is the 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 next in line, so to speak. Well, he was, and he, you know, he has an older brother named Tark, but Tark, he said, Tark himself told me I'm the black sheep in the family. And so I think it was always predestined and predetermined that, that Malik would be, would be the, would be the heir to the throne and um, crappy way to, 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 to earn it. But uh, yeah, um, I think Malik's got at least Tark, maybe some other brothers, but no, Malik was always the one that was groomed to take over the family business. So, yeah. And you mentioned uh, Jamie Lee Curtis there. I, uh, all, everyone I've spoken to said that she was an absolute professional. Like when you hit a hundred uh, reels, like she would you know, give out wine. Obviously her part in the resurrection was quite small compared. And you mentioned the, the 30 seconds of dialogue or non-dialogue there, but um, she was very giving. And obviously I think she was a little bit, um, I think she wanted H2O to kind of be the, the, the finale, but uh, obviously contractual, you know, there's contracts and, you know, when certain things make money, then they're going to make sequels. I guess the, the question being um, that never came across on, on set that she obviously, you know, wasn't a big fan of the ending of uh, H2O, the retcon, I guess you could say. I don't know that she ever criticized the ending of H2O, but she did express, um, she was glad that she was going to be supposedly done with the, the franchise um, because of course she always longed to be uh, respected and appreciated for being a real actor. She wanted to shed that scream queen. Um, but now that she's done all the things she's done, including winning the Oscar, you know, she, I think she could appreciate what the horror genre did for her, which is why she agreed to come back and do these more of these other films. And um uh, she told me at the time one day that she was done starring in films. She said, I'll, I'll do two and three week, uh, you know, uh, guest spots. She says, but I'm done. But then Freaky Friday came along. And I think that was a really challenging part. 
and then Christmas with the Cronks, Cronks, Crumps, Cronks, Cranks, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think she always longed to be respected in the same vein as her parents. You know, I because I, she did the Halloween movies and she had done another one, another horror film, and I guess she kind of she always wanted to break away from that tag of being the scream queen, you know, and um. And, you know, when I started watching uh, everything uh, here and there, whatever it's called, all at once, I didn't even recognize her for the first couple of minutes until she spoke. I might watch it tonight because I, it's a little too much, too fantasy. And I, I'm not a big fan of CGI, but I'm a huge fan of Jamie. So I, I, I my, my, my nephew, he told me, no, Uncle, Uncle Brad, you got to watch the whole thing because she ends up doing a bunch of kung fu fighting. So I got to see that. Yeah. It's me and the wife watched that not too long ago. It, it, it's a, it's a lot happening at once. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great film. Yeah. Well, it did very well at the awards. I'm really happy for, uh, really happy for Jamie. I, you know, you could see when they announced her name that she was legitimately surprised. Yeah. So I was really happy for her. Chris Durand, uh, who did uh, Michael Myers and Halloween H2O, said she's a sweetheart, but she swears like a sailor. Um, so was she dropping a few F-bombs on set? I didn't see that. She, uh, but she, you know, she's got a bit of a, uh, she's got some rough edge to her for sure. <laughs> she's a woman that grew up in Hollywood and uh, she doesn't take any guff, but she was very kind to my girlfriend and I. She let us stay in the trailer and hang out with her and she'd give my girlfriend advice about how to deal with me. And oh, and then I mean, you may have heard this story, but the day that we were going to do the kissing scene, which Jamie Lee Curtis's stunt double, Donna Keegan, told me, Jamie won't shoot that scene the way it's written. But my girlfriend needed the truck that day. So she came to work with me. And as I was unloading my stunt bags, <laughs> Jamie comes running up and grabs me and dips me. And he, Plans going on me says, This is the way I think we should shoot the scene. And my girlfriend was livid when I got home. You never told me you were gonna. I says, Honey, I didn't think they were gonna shoot that way. I was told it wasn't happening and I'll be wearing the mask. And anyway, did she slip the tongue in? No, she didn't. <laughs> this- oh, I did blow a few sets, so we had to do it over and over. <laughs> <laughs> oh but yeah it's, i mean yeah I, and i think she she would have had fun with that and i think that was like a little nod uh i think the mtv awards they had like the best kiss i think that was a a bit of a try to shoehorn that in there right I, i'll tell you though when she got wrapped sunday afternoon because she's been saying that for a while guys i gotta get to the airport and they finally wrapped her and she immediately ran over to me gave me a big hug kissed me on the cheek and whispered in my ear you're delicious and then ran <laughs> off and i was so stunned i and to this day, I'm not really sure what she meant by that, but I just thought it was very. And you know, that's another thing I wanted to mention. She, you know, she's only there for four, three and a half days, and she bought us all a little crew gift, a little pocket uh, Leatherman, you know, with the knives and the, uh, the whatever. So I thought that was really, and she had had them all engraved. So I thought that was really sweet. And again, that's sort of all, all I've heard from everyone I've spoken to that, you know, professional and, and sweet. So it's it's glad to know, even though, you know, maybe not a fan of, you know, I guess storyline and direction was that, uh, you know, she'll do that, right? Yeah, yeah. And in your, uh, you did a bit of studying of uh, all your, your predecessors, like uh, watching all the Michael Myers, you know, from the Nick Castles to the Dick Warlocks and being like you know, an actor slash stuntman, would, would have that been the most confusing thing to do that you would have got confused on who you were not, not trying to mimic, but you know, uh, did you try to bring your own thing to the character? I feel like watching them all would have maybe, uh, you got too much in your head. I fast forwarded through all the Halloweens, like the, from the second one on and, and just watched the Michael Myers's. But because I thought that to me, Nick Castle is the shape. Dick Warlock's a close second. 
I love Uncle Dick. He's a very good, very, very sweet man and a good friend. And uh, but I watched the first. I watched them all, and then I went back to the first one. Uh, I love Chris Durant. I hated his performance, but he admits I never studied the guy. I just did it my way, you know. And because I thought his Michael Myers looked like a man dressed up as Michael Myers. It didn't look like Mike, Michael Myers to me. It looked like a guy that was in costume for Halloween. But uh, I, I tried to copy Nick Castle as best I could. The 45 anniversary uh, coming up. I, I sort of liken yeah. it to being in a, a certain fraternity of guys. Obviously, you know, George P. Wilbur uh, sadly passed away uh, recently. But I guess out of uh, all the guys who have donned the famous mask, do you have like a favorite that you go to on on the on film? And do you have a favorite that you uh, get to catch up and speak with? Well, I, you know, like I said, Nick Castle's the guy that I, I, I'll watch the first Halloween every fucking October for the rest of my life. I, and, I, and I have to say, I thought the second one, I remember watching it in the theater. I thought, you know, this is as, as good a sequel as I've ever seen. If they hadn't made the first one, this still would have made the franchise super popular. Yeah. And I love Dick Warlock. We don't talk as often. He's getting a little older, a little harder of hearing. But no, I'm not in touch with any, any of the guys on a regular basis, but it's the same kind of thing as being on set. You know, you're going to, you always assume you're going to run into him at a convention eventually, you know, but we lost Jim Winburn and George Wilbur last year. And, um, you know, uncle Dick, uh, I shouldn't say this, but he's not a young man anymore. And, um, um, but he, uh, he, he's retired from the convention circuit so many times, Joe, I can't count that high, but he's coming, hopefully coming to Pasadena this, this, this fall. And with the uh, 45 anniversary, is it good to kind of, uh, you know, be among people that are beating the franchise? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're all, we're all kind of like family, you know, the Halloween conventions is all about the Halloween franchise. So, you know, you're going to get to meet a lot of people and reminisce and, uh, you know, it's like old times and, uh, cause I'm coming up on, um. It's been almost 20 years since my first convention. And I remember when I first went to Pasadena for that first, uh, I forget which, uh, it was like 2004, I think, 2005. Anyway, I was just so nervous and I didn't know what to expect. And I got out of the cab and walked past the lineup with my suitcase. I could hear people whispering, that's Bradley, that's Bradley. Of course, I was the new guy on the block. So all the guys wanted to have a drink with you and all the girls wanted to have a hug. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that convention. It might have been the was it the two that the the twenty fifth anniversary return to Haddonfield one. I think uh, Anthony Massey, who would go on to to do the website for Halloween, um, was one of the organizers for that. It might 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 not be that one, but um, there was a special sort of documentary that came on came off the back of that one. And uh, your co star Bianca, the obviously the final girl Sarah Moya, says that um, that um, she knew when you were nervous because uh, you'd get a bit flatulent, uh, some farting on set. I uh, I have a reputation, as does my brother, for being a bit gassy, Joel. And yeah, I guess I was fart on set a lot. In fact, the first AD finally got the shoestring and she put a bottle of Beano around the, glued it to this necklace and put it around my head. And uh, and I got the first interview I ever did on camera, I was wearing this Beano and they asked me about it. And I said, yeah. And then she was being interviewed with the whole big poster behind her all that. And, they asked her, is there any particular jokes or, you know, practical jokes that anybody played on here? She says, well, not really, but Brad, who played Michael, had a real farting problem. But, you know, the, the, surely it'd be funny to just, you know, like see Michael Myers walking down the corridor than just let one rip. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was, I, I, yeah, we did that a lot when the, when the camera wasn't rolling. <laughs> 
and the mask was probably one of the more interesting masks um, in the franchise because the way it was kind of designed and there were certain um, scenes which had certain lighting on it and it probably made it made it look really menacing and that and obviously you've uh, spoken about before using the sh- the shark eyes sort of how you would u- use your eyes and add into it so it was definitely a unique mask and uh, take on uh, the Michael Myers character. Well, it was super comfortable, and I, I and to this day I still don't know if they cast everybody's head. Or I'm wondering when they started doing that because the original mask, as we all know, was a was a was a Captain Kirk mask. So I'm wondering, you know, because I mean, when I look at the mask, I can almost see that it was shaped to my face, you know, and um, and I was just so lucky that uh, how quickly it came on and how quickly it went back uh, came off. But yeah, it's it's a unique looking mask. Now, Rob Zombie has been pretty uh, vocal when he was doing the the reboot of Halloween um, that uh, the Weinstein's or Bob Weinstein was, you know, quite critical or was hard to deal with. Did Was there any Weinstein, I guess, uh, handling with Halloween Resurrection? No, I don't remember meeting any of the Weinsteins. Um, no. And sort of speaking to Daniel Ferens, who was the writer on... Um, Halloween six, he kind of said that uh, he was shielded from a lot of potential sort of Weinstein or, you know, that, that posse, so to speak, uh, any issues there. Do you think because Mustafa was on set, he kind of shielded a lot of the talent or big players. If there was any things in the background, he kind of took heat. Well, I, I think your big players stay in LA. I don't know if they come to visit their different projects that are, that are abroad. Uh, uh, Paul Freeman was the biggest executive that I remember being on set. As best I understand, I don't know how the upper echelon works. I just don't have fall down on the X plate call action. But yeah, no, I don't remember any of the Weinsteins, or I, 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 I don't remember anybody, um, anybody overseen other than Paul. What about the premiere of Halloween Resurrection? Did you get to walk the red carpet? Uh, when they had the premiere down in L.A., they phoned me because they were going to arrange a car for me. And I said, well, you better arrange a plane in a hotel, too, because I'm up here in Canada. I'm not paying for my own. So I didn't get to make the premiere. But I sort of think that um, the guy behind the mask should stay behind the mask. I, I, I think Michael Myers is more cryptic when he's not associated with any particular person that's behind the mask, if that makes any sense. A bit of mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um which is where I thought we lost with the zombie, Rob Zombie films, although I ever saw the first one. I just thought that he, too much backstory, he's too big. It took away the um, cryptic, uh, you know, and the mystique about the guy. Now we understand why he is and what he is. and it's not, it, it, There was no more mystery to the, to the character. And, um, yeah, I really was disappointed with the first one. And I've heard a lot of people say that the second one's just even worse. So I never even watched the second one. You were you were all on board to reprise the Michael Myers role. Obviously, it would got, get rebooted and be in the hands of Rob Zombie. Do you think, let's say, there was a continuation from Resurrection? Were, were you in talks or were you in contact with uh, the brass to to jump back on as the Michael Myers? No, no. Um, uh, Malik was going to bring another horror uh, show to Canada at one time. He said, Brad, I'd love to give you the party if we do come i don't think it happened but uh you know i just got the part by the total fluke because it was shot in canada i i don't have working papers for the states and um yeah they're, they're not gonna fly me down i mean i don't know that they have a lot of respect for the artist how much artist art 
artistic expression it takes to be a guy in a mask. You know, I mean, I was the only one they looked at. They're like, yeah, he'll be fine. <laughs> you said when you went to one of your first conventions, you're copping a lot of flack for uh, letting Buster Rhymes kick you out of a uh, out of the window and all that. Um, but what did you think? What did you think of Buster Rhymes' kung fu moves? Uh, you, you're you like you said you've done taekwondo or karate. You know you know a thing or two about fighting. Were you there on set teaching him how to do that? No, he'd been studying a style of kung fu called hungar, I believe, and I didn't think twice about it. You know, Joel, I'm just a stunt guy. It's in the script. Jump, he gets yep. kicked out the window. Fine, but. The first dozen fans came up to me and just tore a strip because Michael Myers is supposed to be superhuman strong and he's not supposed to get shit kicked by some uh, rap artist. So I took a lot of flack for that and I had a lot of people tell me they didn't like the film. And uh, But today, 21 years later, I'm getting more and more young, uh, uh, young uh, adults coming up to me and saying, Resurrection was my first Halloween movie in the theater, my first whatever period. And... Uh, so you're Michael Myers to me. And I never thought about that. I always thought that everybody would think that their first one, Nick Castle, because that's my Michael Myers. But uh, it's kind of nice that this new fat and this new generation of fans is coming up. And um, and I have just watched it the other day, uh, a couple of weeks ago, with a producer, writer friend of mine, who's a huge horror fan. And um, the more I watch it, the more I appreciate it. It was I don't want to say it was ahead of its time. But, you know, with the, with the text need and the reference to Survivor, you're going to get voted off the island. I just thought it was really, um, I thought it was a good film. I, I, I thought it was scary. And I thought the acting was great. I thought the effects were great. And uh, I thought it was brilliant the way they brought Michael Myers back after getting his head chopped off. A couple of working titles was obviously Halloween 8. Then there was uh, Halloween.com, uh, Halloween Homecoming, MichaelMyers.com. Do you think they those working titles may have been better than Halloween Resurrection? Well, up until Resurrection, Jamie Lee Curtis got to pick the title of all, every single one, the ones she worked in, and she wanted to call Resurrection H2K1. That's what I, I believe that's what it was. It, yeah, it was H2K1. It was the new the new millennium, and uh, they were like, no, nah, we're not going with that. And uh, I didn't hear about those other names because... I'm pretty sure Resurrection was the name on the first scripts I got, you know, and I do kick myself, Joel. I probably had, because they do rewrites all the time, so I had two, three, four of those scripts, and I could have gotten all the actors to sign those scripts, and I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, yeah. I remember my first convention, I, I was teasing Malik about giving me one of the masks, because Dick Warlock had kept the mask, the knife, the boots, and the overalls, and they ended up selling them years later. And Malik first said, uh, Brad, you know, we don't want the, we just don't know where the masks are going to end up. They don't want them in some basement porn, I guess. But then, it, then I, I kept on him and he said, yeah, Brad, he said, I'll go get you a mask. But I didn't know, Joel, I didn't know to stay on it. And the last year, they auctioned one of my masks, like three, maybe four that I actually wore in the film. And the auction went off in England and it went for 50,000 pounds. It's like 83,000 Canadian dollars. <laughs> that's a, that's so. a fair bit of coin. Coulda, shoulda, woulda, you know. <laughs> and um, I guess you said that you didn't know what you were getting yourself into. I think, did you do an interview with Fangora? Either it was either pre or post uh, filming, and that was the question saying, "Do you do you know what you're getting yourself into?" No, I, I do remember. I well, I remember that Fangora interviewed me at one time. I there's been so many I can't remember when, but I do. 
I do remember in the interview on camera where I had the Beano around my neck, I said, yeah, you, they asked me if you get any fan mail. I go, I am getting approached by some fans and I, I really appreciate it. Keep the letters coming because uh, I, I promised to answer them all. But of course, I had no idea what I was saying, Joel. Anyway. Any, anything on set um, that uh, is a, a memory that you hold dear or perhaps something that um, not many fans know about? I mean, because us uh, horror fans, we seem to find out a lot, you know, on the internet or there's always things out there. But is there something that you could say that uh, maybe fans or people don't know? Well, I think I've talked about how afraid of me Bianca was before she would the day she met me and I wasn't even it was the middle of the day and I'm dressed like a, you know in my t-shirt and jeans but she was just scared to death and to get over it she started going everywhere with me holding my hand like we were boyfriend girlfriend that's how she got over it but um uh you know that's in the you know the kiss with with, with my girlfriend you know these are the kind of things I mean I uh, you know I'll remember them all after we hang up Joel but on the spot I there's not a whole lot else that really, really stands out I just um it was just so much fun. I, I would love to have done it, you know, again, of course, but uh, it didn't work. It didn't happen. And before we wrap up, um, your thoughts on uh, Rick Rosenthal? He was the director, you know, he directed two, which um, you said was like a fantastic sequel. And I think amongst most Halloween fans, uh, Halloween 2, you know, holds up. As a director, you know, thoughts on uh, Rick Rosenthal? Oh, I love Coach. And I call him Coach because he and his son are hockey fans. And he had these hockey t-shirts. But I uh, only had one little uh, misunderstanding when we were shooting the scene where I killed the guy with the tripod. Um, I just, I either wasn't paying attention or I didn't do it the way he wanted. He kind of barked at me a little bit and I barked back and that was it. But no, other than that, I, I, he was terrific. And uh, it was a real honor to get to work with him. Uh, whenever I watch Resurrection, I tell people, now watch this guy as the university professor. This is the best actor in the whole movie. And in that scene where they pan up to Bianca, they go past my girlfriend, the one I was, the one that freaked out when, I, when I, she found out I was kissing Jamie. And the guy that I killed with the tripod was, um, ended up being a roommate of mine. When I watch Resurrection, I get to see Rick again. I get to see my ex again. I get to see my buddy Brad again. And, you know, and, and just remember all the, all the behind the scenes. The next thing I'm going to do now, I'm going to look at that panning shot. I'm going to try to find the ex-girlfriend. Can you give us a hint on what side she's, uh, where she's sitting? Um, when it, when they pan up towards Bianca, she will be in a burgundy top with, I think, a jean jacket, glasses, dark hair. And she'll be in the lower right hand. Uh, she'll be kind of in the center. And then as the camera comes up, she fades off to the right side. Uh, we're still friends. I'm still in love with her, but, um, um, anyway, yeah, she's, so she was in it. And, uh, and then I think about all the people we got to double the actors for the different scenes, you know, and, uh, cause the guy, Bill Lawrence, the double Bustifer, when, uh, he hits Michael with the shovel, Michael like, pushes him and he flies back into the wall. I'm telling you, I mean, it was dimly lit. So, but from 10 feet away, uh, you couldn't tell who was Buster and who was Bill. I think he was the, I'd never seen a double look so much like his actor. He's fantastic. So anyway. <laughs> Did your girlfriend get paid or that was just, uh, hey, you want to be in a movie? Well, she got paid, uh, I think, background, like extra work. She wasn't getting stunt pay, but she got she got a check from the from the production. And um, yeah. <laughs> that, that made up for uh, Jamie Lee sl slipping the tongue in. Well, here's something I can tell you, Joe, because you asked about behind the scenes stories. Jamie Lee Curtis's stunt double, uh, Donna Keegan, who was the American coordinator, 
she just took her shine to me immediately. And when she met Jade, she took her shine to Jade and she wanted Jade to double uh, uh, Bianca. But I, I had just gotten into stunts Canada and I talked to some of the guys and they said, Brad, it looks like you're using your position to hire your girlfriend. Who's mm. not an established stunt person. She's not in our group. She's not a veteran. There's other girls. So I ended up hiring my boxing coach's daughter who did a great job and she was a better double than Jade. Um, but uh, yeah, Jade was very upset with me and uh, you know, we had a little bit of a spat around that, but anyway, I still appreciate that Donna wanted to do that for me. And, uh, but I said, Donna, I can't let this happen. Uh, my name will be mud after you leave town. I'll be in trouble with the group because there's politics like anything. Yeah. Brad, like always, you've been very gracious uh, with your time. Now, you are doing conventions and all that all around the world. You said you've gone over to England and you're doing the the Halloween 45 anniversary and that. But what's the best way for horror fans and Halloween fans to keep in touch with uh, what you've got coming up? That's an excellent question, Joel. And I don't really have an appropriate answer, although I will tell you that I have this writer-producer friend that wants to help me uh, develop a, t a, a TikTok page, a channel, whatever it's called, where I'm going to present myself as the um, uh, uh, sort of a, a horror film critic who hates horror films that was in a horror film and um, uh, just sort of interact with the fans that way. And that may, maybe I can flog some uh, autographs on, on that web, on that whatever it is. I, I'm not a technological guy at all. I'm 63, right? But, um, but I also want to um, have it somehow. I, I, I've had my battles with booze, drugs, and food, and I, you know, I'm I'm still in recovery from uh, some of my addictions. And I, I would like to, um, if there's any horror fans out there that want to talk to me about recovery and um, if I can help people that way, um, I, uh, I'm hoping that that's what we're. Uh, it, Joel, it's all talk until it happens. So, uh, and I know nothing about it unless this person helps me. I, I'll be buggered. But um, I just guess just Google my name. If there's anything new coming up, I guess it'll be there. I, I don't know. I I have a lot of people. Some you know, I have a lot a lot of fans try to friend me on Facebook, but I hate Facebook and and social media. Joel, I I have a very hard times giving this person my time and not that person. And so um, I apologize for that because, I, like I said, I'm not a horror fan, but I love horror fans. But, yeah, that sounds uh, interesting, the sort of uh, the horror movie critic too, who doesn't like horror. And just, you know, talking about people with addictions and recovery, that's something that's very, I think, um, would be a lot of benefit to a lot of people who are suffering or going through or know someone who's going through that, right? Well, I almost I almost tashed it in a few years back, Joel. So I'm... Um, and the whole thing about the AA program, um, not that I'm a gigantic advocate, but uh, you know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob found that when they helped another addict, that's where they got helped. That's where they got spiritual. And that's where they got a purpose. And that's what really helped them to stay sober. So if I can help people, if I can counsel some, you know, I don't care how old they are or where they're from, they got addiction issues. I, I would love to, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping this, TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is to so look for that. So we'll see where that all goes. And uh, I hope you keep in touch, Joel. Thank you so much. Uh, hello again and uh, goodbye to everybody uh, down under. And um, I'm a big fan of your, uh, your, your country and your people. 
Brad, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. And, you know, life's short. Hopefully you can get this thing off the ground where you help others. Because I think, you know, life's short and helping, I think, helping others, it's something that's very underrated. Joel, if you ever find a reason to want to do this again, please let me know down the road. And um, if you uh, have any interest in doing this with Ken Kurzinger, I don't know if you've reached out to him, but Kay and I talk and... Um, if I recommend somebody, he usually agrees to do it and vice versa. So we look out for each other. You've been absolutely right. amazing. You, you, you got fa- you got fans out there and, you know, people you know might want to um, slag off Halloween Resurrection. But like you said, there's a lot of people out there that absolutely love it and love you. So uh, stay positive and uh, it was great speaking with you. Cheers, Joel. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Talking Shape, the ultimate Halloween franchise podcast created by the fans. Make sure to stay up to date with the latest episodes by following Talking Shape on Twitter at Talking underscore Shape and liking us on Facebook. Feel free to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We appreciate your support. Until next time. Go home. Go home.